This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Renee Kanaki-Jefferson and Hannah Brenner-Johnson to talk about their new book, Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Renee and Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. We're so glad to speak with you. So, Renee, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with Hannah and how you know each other and came to work together on this book? Sure. We've known each other for a long time. Uh, It goes back over a decade when we were both colleagues at Michigan State University teaching in the law school there. And the origins of this book, well, that's in many ways the origins of our friendship. We found ourselves in hallway conversations talking about the nominations of now Justices Kagan and Sotomayor after Obama put them both on the Supreme Court. And we were noticing the media's fixation on uh, lots of qualities about them being women, being single women, questioning whether they should be mothers in order to be on the court, questioning their wardrobe choices, mocking the fact that both had worn similar blue blazers when they were in their Senate confirmation hearings and asking who wore it better. And we, we hadn't remembered that same kind of focus when Bush, just a few years before, had appointed now Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito. And so as our friendship was blossoming, so were our conversations about this. And we thought, you know, we don't want to just talk about this. We, we want to understand it as academics and, and try to see if there isn't something about the way the media focuses on those the attributes of women that also correlates to the lack of women in positions of leadership and power. And so we, we embarked on a media study and that from that media study, our friendship grew and uh, eventually we decided to write this book, which had its origins there. So Hannah, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about how you even researched this book. You guys have a great appendix where you discuss uh, your research methodology, but With the exception of President Trump, who released his shortlist of justices publicly, generally shortlists are kind of media speculation, and it's hard for the public to know who may be the next Supreme Court justice, although there's always speculation. So how did you and Renee research this book to come up with the nine women you identified who had been on shortlists but did not end up making the court? So you raise a really great question, and it's one that we wrestled with for a long time. As you suggest, there isn't always an easily discernible way to know who even appeared on a presidential shortlist. In fact, President Trump was the first president to actually make public his list um, on the White House website. And so for the purposes of putting together this book and even figuring out who, uh, which women were in fact shortlisted, required an incredible amount of painstaking, careful research that included trips to presidential libraries, personal archives, digging through history books. And in fact, the question, I think, uh, requires a little bit of a backstory uh, that builds on Renee's discussion of how we met and how this book evolved. In fact, we had really never considered that women had been considered for the Supreme Court before 
Sandra Day O'Connor was nominated by President Reagan um, in 1981. And it was as a part of this media study that Renee spoke about, where we were digging through literally thousands of newspaper articles that were written about nominees to the court dating back to the early 70s, that we uncovered really a gem of an article that was the inspiration for this entire book. It was an article published in the New York Times in 1971 that talked about a woman who neither of us had heard of. Her name was Mildred Lilly. Mildred Lilly was a judge from California who President Nixon had shortlisted for the Supreme Court. And the article caught our attention, not just because we didn't know of that history, but it also caught our attention because of the way that the author described Justice Lilly. And she was described as looking fantastic in a bathing suit, even in her 50s. And the authors also commented that it was fortunate that she didn't have any children because, of course, as you can imagine, how could one be a mother um, and a justice on the Supreme Court? And so it was that article that spawned what has become really a decade-long research project conversation uh, and obviously um, book writing, that we started to ask the question, who else had been shortlisted? What other women might have appeared on presidential shortlists over the course of history? And Renee, we'd love to hear a passage from this book that, that took 10 years of research. Uh, do you have a passage you'd like to read for us? Sure. Um, I'll start with the, the introduction. Shortlisted. Adjective. Qualified for a position but not selected from a list that creates the appearance of diversity but preserves the status quo. As the New York Times reported in 1971, Mildred Lilly fortunately had no children. The article marveled at how she maintained a bathing beauty figure in her 50s. Lilly was not, however, featured in the news as a swimsuit model. Instead, she was shortlisted. President Richard Nixon had included her among six potential nominees on his list for the United States Supreme Court. At the time, Lilly had served as a judge on California courts for more than 20 years. Her resume was as competitive, if not more so, than others on Nixon's list. Lilly could have been the nation's first female justice, but she wasn't chosen. Instead, Nixon claimed to care about diversity, but preserved an all-male court. This book exposes the potential harms of being shortlisted and offers inspiration for women to chart a path from shortlisted to selected in any career. Stories of women shortlisted for the Supreme Court illuminate how this can be accomplished. Their early successes in a world hostile to women offer excellent guidance for navigating the inequalities that endure in the Me Too world. We share their stories and their collective strategies for moving from shortlisted to selected in the pages that follow but first, back to the bathing beauty, the Honorable Mildred Lilly. The Times article provoked outrage on the opinion page, even in that era. As one reader observed to the editor, your description of the qualifications of Judge Mildred Lori Lilly, biographical sketches of Supreme Court nominees, October 14, illustrates the perfectly sexist, absurd prejudices to which all women are persistently subjected. Why did you choose to objectify this woman and diminish her accomplishments by including such a totally irrelevant and subjective item? You implied that Judge Lilly's body was as significant as any single professional attribute she possesses. There was no discussion of the health, much less the physique, of any of the other possible nominees. Perhaps you could rectify this inequality by printing a discussion of the extent to which Senator Byrd has retained his schoolboy figure, or the manner in which Herschel Friday fills his swimsuit. Barbara B. Martin's sketch of Judge Lilly 
New York Times, October 23rd, 1971. Well, thank you so much for reading that for us, Renee. And one of the things I'm glad uh, our listeners got to hear is that this is not just a straightforward, you know, biography of nine women lawyers and judges. That's that's not all this is. So I would love to hear a little bit more from the two of you about how you decided to structure the book, because we get some wonderful biographical sketches. But as you said, you're also talking about systemic change. Uh, Hannah, do you want to take that one? Sure. This was a very lengthy um, conversation that spanned uh, probably a, a couple of years early on in the project. You could certainly imagine how a book like this could be strictly biographical in nature. Uh, and it's true that each of the nine women are deserving of lots and lots of study and attention and research because they are extraordinary in their own right. Some of them, in fact, have been the subject of biographers, research, other sorts of uh, you know, academic and even cultural attention. But the one thing that really struck us and the one thing that I think is really unique about this book is the collective storytelling that we do. So it's one thing to know that there was a woman who was shortlisted for the court and that she was incredibly credentialed, but just wasn't selected. It's another thing altogether to contemplate that there were nine women that spanned decades and decades dating back to the 1930s who really could have made excellent uh, contributions to our nation's highest court had they in fact been selected for that position. And so through that collective storytelling, we identified a number of themes that really allowed us to draw connections about their lives. And so while a straight biography would certainly be interesting, we think that the real value in telling the story is to look at the things about them, uh, among them, that are similar, that are different, and then, of course, be able to extract lessons that can help guide the paths of professional women today, not just in law, but across all fields. One thing that I appreciated about your writing and the time that you devoted to these women is that these are not simple, straightforward stories of the kind that I remember reading when I was a little kid and there would be a children's book about Sandra Day O'Connor and she, you know, grew up on a ranch and she rode horses and it was just very simplistic. These were complicated human beings. And when you look at the concerns we have today about intersectionality, for example, I'm thinking of uh, Susie Sharp here. She made tremendous strides for white women, but she was documented to hold very racist views. So I'm just curious as to, you know, could you tell us a little, little bit about her? Because I think that that kind of illustrates some of the complexity. It's not a straightforward morality tale. Sure. She's an interesting one because you're, you're right. She held explicitly racist views. And yet she authored the opinion in North Carolina that ordered the desegregation of uh, private golf courses, golf clubs. And she even said afterwards, it, it pained her to do it because she didn't personally believe that should be the outcome, but she was following the rule of law. And so she's an example that um, we found uh, we could really appreciate because she was able to set aside whatever her personal views were to apply the law that that um, she knew uh, applied. 
she had other complexities to her as well. Um, so obviously she enjoyed her professional career in life, uh, but she was very much a stickler for the notion that women had to choose only professional life or only raising children, that you couldn't do both well. And uh, another thing that we discovered, both through a biography that's been written about her, only two of the women have had biographies. One is Susie Sharp. But also I, I spent hours in her personal archives and publicly, what we first learned about her was through sort of an initial layer of, of research in newspaper clippings. And she would hold herself out as being very much a spinster of sorts, not caring for romance or even really domesticity in any way. But her personal archives are overflowing with all kinds of clippings from her diaries, everything ranging from like the, the makeup she would put on, what she would eat each day, what she was planning to wear. She was a, a huge follower of the royal family. She would clip all kinds of coverage about that. Love letters going back between various different romantic partners. And so she was leading this very different life privately than what she was holding out publicly. It's, it's one of the you know, lessons we sort of drew toward the end of the writing of, of this book that um, we think that we would be in a much better world for everyone if those who ascend to positions of leadership and power don't feel that they have to keep their private lives separate from their professional life. Another woman who I just feel like we would really be remiss if we didn't talk about because she was fascinating to me and I had never heard of her to, to my shame was Amalia Lyle Kearse. Is it Kearse? It is Kearse. Yeah. I've been told by a former clerk of hers, uh, Kearse is in fierce, which I, I love that. <laughs> oh, I love that too. Could you talk a little bit about her? So Judge Kearse was or is the only woman of color who was was shortlisted during the time that we studied. And so that makes her somebody who really stands out and is unique. She, like so many women in the study, really occupied um, a number uh, of firsts. She was uh, employed on Wall Street early in her career, um, and uh, she became the first African-American partner of a major Wall Street firm back in 1969. And so she really, in doing so, was part of a very um, small and elite group of women who not only shattered that glass ceiling um, based on her gender, but also on her race. Well, I would just make the observation that, you know, and again, when we set out to figure out who else had been shortlisted besides Mildred Lilly, we knew that because she was in the article. Sylvia Bacon appeared there too um, also. We had no idea what we would find, but it's not lost on us that there's only one minority woman in this cohort. And we think that that is reflective of the, the intersectionality issues you, you have already referenced, the idea that there are more burdens, more hurdles that minority women face when they're trying to move into professional life. And that's certainly reflected in the numbers of our study and that only one of, of the nine women is a minority woman. I think I also would be remiss if I didn't bring up the fact that, you know, I am an editor with the ABA Journal and professional organization, the professional structures in the judicial system also had a hands not only in uh, sometimes helping these women in their professions, but also holding them back. And I found it really pretty fascinating when I would catch a glimpse and you would talk about how the American Bar Association Standing Committee on the Federal Judiciary would look at a woman's record and sometimes they would come back and they would just fiercely say, not qualified. 
uh, even though you looked at their their backgrounds and their history and compared them to you know people who were successful in ascending to the court and thought, well, what about them made them not qualified? Anyway, I'd be I'd be thrilled to hear a little bit more, not just about the ABA's role in analyzing people's worthiness to be on Supreme Court, but also the other structures that were really helping maintain the status quo. Yeah, I, I can speak to that. And I guess maybe I'll give you, um, I'll speak to ones that were maintaining the status quo, and then I'll give you an example of one that helped change it. So you're exactly right. The ABA um, is certainly not the American Bar Association it is today with uh, our fabulous president, uh, Judy Perry Martinez. Um, it was a different time and uh, it was definitely played a role uh, back in um, Mildred Lilly's potential nomination. And we have listened to President Nixon in the Oval Office, you know, listen back to his tapes where he talks about how um, you know, he, he's sort of the worst offender in the use of the shortlist because he's just brazenly saying, you know, I don't think women should vote. I don't think they should even be in professional life. You know, he says they're too emotional and erratic. But then he's just rich know, he's coming from Nixon. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then, and then he, he's literally calculating. He's like, but I think we probably could get like, you know, a few extra points of votes if we, you know, because we want, he wanted the women to vote for him. He didn't think they should have the vote, but since they did, he wanted their vote. And um, he even says at one point, um, well, you know, let's put her name forward and hopefully the ABA will just let us off the whole, you know, I think he even uses an expression an expletive there, the whole thing, we'll just say, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he's looking to the APA, um, sort of understanding that they're going to come back and say she's unqualified, uh, which they did. And uh, years later, his White House counsel, John Dean, wrote in a book that was a really wonderful resource for us as we were doing this, this research. He said that he looked back and he held Mildred Lilly's resume next to Sandra Day O'Connor's. And Judge Lilly was as, if not more qualified, and absolutely would have been uh, an appropriate choice for, for the court. So that, that rating was not fair. So that is an example of a structural barrier that held women back. Sometimes they were, the barriers were even more explicit. You know, when Florence Allen, the first woman to be shortlisted in the 1930s, when she joined the Sixth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals, Roosevelt put her there in 1934. There wasn't even a bathroom in place for her. So, I mean, sometimes there weren't even facilities, literally not physical structures to accommodate women, not, not only these kind of old boys networks that were getting in the way. But let me bookend that with an example that we uncovered. And it, it goes to your question um, about Judge Kirsten, what makes her somewhat unique in this story as well. So how does she end up being the one minority female who is considered seriously for the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, by, by Reagan when he's putting together his, his shortlist? And it's because of the work of a president who actually never got a chance to put anyone on the Supreme Court. And that's Jimmy Carter. There was never a vacancy during his presidency, but what he did do when he came into office, he was committed to changing the diversity of the federal judiciary. He wanted more women and minorities on all federal courts, and he issued an executive order implementing a structural change. It created judicial commissions across the country. The commissions themselves were diverse in makeup, so women and minorities were on the commissions. They were charged with vetting applicants for federal judicial appointments. And they were tasked with looking at candidates who were women and minorities and reaching out to them. All of the candidates were asked questions about their commitment to diversity. Judge Kearse served on one of those commissions. And then eventually she is selected by one of those commissions. 
or the Second Circuit, where she still sits today. And I'll just jump in. Sometimes we observe that it wasn't just the existence of structures that impeded women's advancement, but sometimes the absence of structures that could be helpful. So today, for example, we take for granted that the ABA has a commission on women in the profession. We have organizations like the National Association of Women Lawyers. But back at the time when many of these women were navigating their professional paths, they didn't have those formal sorts of opportunities to connect with one another. And so I think to somebody like Joan Dempsey-Klein, um, a judge from California, who was very instrumental in creating two of the professional organizations that have done so much for women, the National Association of Women Judges and California Women Lawyers. Both of those organizations, of course, today we take for granted. But Judge Klein really, I think, embodied something that we pull out as a strategy for women, and that's to create opportunity. If we don't have the the institution or the structure in place to be able to help us navigate these pipelines to power, there's nothing that says we can't create those opportunities, and we really encourage women to think about doing things just like that. Another anecdote that you guys use that really to me shows some of it was a failure of imagination and even opening up the idea of, oh, well, maybe one day a woman will appear on the Supreme Court. And it has to do with Cornelia Kennedy, who was considered by a couple of presidents, it sounds like, on their short list. And a time when she was doing a uh, mock trial. Could you tell that story? Because I just, this was something that I didn't know. Uh, and it has to do with how Supreme Court justices used to be addressed versus how they are now addressed. Yeah, so she's doing like a, a law school, you know, mock oral argument, and the the law students were addressing her as Madam Justice, and um, she was presiding with another justice who was sitting on the the U.S. Supreme Court at the time, and and in the mock oral argument, she says, you know, it's not Madam Justice or Mr. Justice, it's Justice. And that led the uh, Supreme Court justice who was with her to go back to his court and say, you know, I think it's probably time that we need to take Mr. Justice off the doors of our office. And, and they did. They literally, you know, you can sort of envision like, um, uh, you know, someone taking and wedging off the Mr. in front of justice. And it happened right before Sandra Day O'Connor ended up joining the court. So by the time she got there, Judge Kennedy had perhaps inadvertently at least prepared the court enough that she would have an appropriate nameplate that um, didn't have Mr. Justice on it or, or you know, set her apart as being Madam Justice. Although when O'Connor joined, they, she still didn't have appropriate bathroom facilities. So there were other changes that, ha- that had to be made. But that was one that, again, uh, something that... We One thing that I think is a big takeaway for us at the end of this project when we were sort of, what have we learned? It's lots of changes like these that that don't tell women to do more or lean in more or follow this five-step plan and then you will be successful or go get this. And but it's it's these changes like this, you know, removing the nameplate from a door that suggests only men can go behind that door, or creating a commission that requires consideration of diverse candidates. That doesn't burden someone who's been excluded from those positions, but it absolutely helps them. And that's a huge lesson I think we learned over and over again through the anecdotes of these women's lives. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. And when we return, I'm going to be speaking with Renee Kanaki Jefferson and Hannah Brenner Johnson about Shortlisted. And we'll hear a little bit more about what their lives have been like trying to launch a new book during the coronavirus pandemic. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library, where we're talking about the book Shortlisted, Women in the Shadows of the Supreme Court. Renee and Hannah, you and I are talking together on May 15th. It's a couple of days after your book has launched, but this can't be the way you saw this playing out and going when you were planning your book tours. So I have to ask, how has COVID-19 impacted you and your plans for the book tour? Well, we had a lovely little book tour planned and, and one, <laughs> one stop along the way for me that was going to be especially moving was at the Seminary Co-op Bookstore on the University of Chicago's campus. And the reason why I went to law school at the University of Chicago and one of the women that we profile and shortlisted, Soya Menchikoff, was the first female law professor at the University of Chicago. I used to walk up and down the aisles of the seminary co-op, looking at the books and you know, seeing on the, the spines the names of my professors and sort of daydreaming about the idea, maybe someday I might write a book. And so I... And now fast forward two decades later, and I'd started daydreaming about the book talk I was going to be giving there with my book. You know, I was thinking maybe, wow, they'll put it in the window. You know, it was, um, and unfortunately, nobody is going to be putting our books in uh, the bookstore windows anytime soon. Although I do have the book sitting on my windowsill. Fortunately, in this, this world, there are a lot of opportunities for podcasts like this. Thank you for having us and doing virtual book talks. And and we we hope that this book will spark a conversation that will outlast the amount of time we are all quarantined uh, for coronavirus. <laughs> and what have been the major changes for you? What would you normally be doing on May 15th? Well, I think that we both planned to do a lot of travel in the coming months and visit um, bookstores, give talks. Um, we had quite an impressive uh, agenda of opportunities to go out and talk about the book. So we are excited that we can do it in a context like this and hope that at some point um, in the not so distant future, we'll be able to resume those plans. But I think like the rest of the world, we're all just uh, adapting and, and doing our best to make do with this strange new world. Yeah. And honestly, on May 15th, I would have typically probably been in my office having this conversation. And instead, I'm in my condo quarantined with my partner and kids and a closet has become my office. So and I imagine that's probably true for a lot of your listeners these days. <laughs> it definitely is. Both of you have worked in legal academia. Were either of you uh, directly teaching a course this semester that had to be moved? Uh, yeah, I was. So um, although it was kind of the ideal, I mean, if if there could be an ideal course to move, it was an ideal course to move in that it was a smaller writing seminar, gender, power, law, and leadership. And by the time we moved online, students were giving their presentations and about the research they had been doing in the class. And I'll tell you, it was really 
it completely made my day each time I could join together with them and have the routine and hearing about the work they were doing. And the classes sometimes ended up being a bit of a therapy session for all of us when we shared, you know, what was going on in our lives in addition to them sharing their extraordinary research. So I was fortunate in that way. And I think, Hannah, you're teaching a course right now online, right? I am. So during the sort of pinnacle of the crisis, I, as the vice dean of my law school, I was not teaching, but I was in fact helping to move our entire curriculum onto an online platform. And I decided to teach the Gender, Power, Law, and Leadership course. Um, Renee and I have co-authored uh, a casebook together uh, that we use to teach that course. So I'm teaching that right now, and I completely agree. It is the bright spot in my week to be able to connect for three hours with my students online. We had thought that we would be holding class in our beautiful boardroom. One of the perks of being an administrator is that you can pick the classroom that you want to teach your course in. Instead, we're, again, sitting at our strange home offices having class. But I think it's 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 been wonderful to connect with the students. You know, I'll just, I'll mention just something personal for me. Um, I was asked to serve as the vice dean of my school um, at this point, um, well over a year, a year and a half ago. And I had a moment where I realized that I had been writing and doing this work about leadership in the legal profession across professions for years. I was mentoring my students. I was giving advice to friends as they navigated their professional paths. But I had gotten so caught up in my work, I think, that I never took a step back, or at least not for a number of years, to actually think about my own leadership. And certainly, I think our book makes the point, and we both share the perspective, that there are so many ways to be a leader. But one of them can be quite obvious in the way that I have done uh, in this position. But I really had never thought about myself stepping into that role. I had to actually literally visualize myself sitting on the other side of the vice dean's desk when I was contemplating accepting the position. But I decided for a lot of reasons, and don't regret them, that it was really the right time for me professionally and personally to take this on. In part, it gives me, I think, even a better sense of empathy and understanding of what many of the women that we studied dealt with in their lives. Well, thank you both so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And if people were interested in reaching out from their quarantined homes and uh, finding out more about this book, including where to buy it, is there a website we can point them to? Do either of you have any contact information you'd like to share? Absolutely. It's super easy to find www.shortlistedbook.com. And there's information on how to order the book. And also you can go and see more information about all of the women that are profiled. They have photos. Some of their best quotes are, are there. So there's some fun stuff on there to explore and play around with as, as well. Shortlistedbook.com. And thanks to all of you for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed the Modern Law Library, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.